We are in an Advent series called God With Us. And earlier today, we lit the candle um, at pre-service, or not at pre-service, at the call to worship, the candle of love. And the candle reminds us that we are in Advent in the season of the church calendar where our hearts take on the posture of waiting. And we're waiting specifically for God to come and make all things right. Our text today is out of John, uh, 1 John 4, 7 through 12. Let me read the text. Beloved, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. And this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also are to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, we thank you that this is a season that we're entering in where we are reminded that you came and we're reminded of our longing for you to come back. And so we are submitting that to you this morning, hoping for your return, acknowledging the tensions, the weirdness that we are in in this world, God, and that we just desperately need you. This world desperately needs you. So God, would you just show up this morning? Would you show up here, Lord, through your Holy Spirit? Would you teach us what you have and remind us of the truth that's already there? Submit everything that I have to you and um, may it be just an honor and a blessing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, for the longest time, I actually really, really, really wanted to start my sermon to talk about German rap music. <laughs> yeah, I know. And yeah, it is a thing. German rap music is a thing. Um, but it wasn't, it, w- it wasn't until Thanksgiving morning that something actually different hit me really, really hard. And what hit me was uh, country icon Martina McBride. She was singing at the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Um, and she was singing the popular Christmas song, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year. And that's when it hit me. The Christmas season is upon us. And literally, this was my unfiltered thought at that time. It's the most wonderful time of the year where we are forcefully trying to be nicer to each other. That's literally what I thought. And that's exactly what the song is actually telling us. If you read the next line, it's almost forcing this on us. The next line says, and everyone telling you, be of good cheer. It's that time of the year again where we got to just kind of like fake love each other. And of course, some of that is genuine. Some of that is true. I'm not saying that everything we're doing is fake. But some of it is also done in this thing that we call the Christmas spirit. But why is it that this season is the time where everyone becomes nicer to each other? Or at least tries to be nicer? We give gifts, we do things, we go out of our ways. We're trying to be more cheerful than usual. We might even say hi to our grumpy neighbor, wish them a, a happy holidays or a Merry Christmas or whatever is politically correct these days, right? We see Christmas decoration everywhere. I actually didn't notice the Christmas decoration um, until I moved into my new neighborhood recently and driving around, walking around there. I don't think I've ever seen as much Christmas decorations as I've seen 
this year, or at least in my neighborhood, than I've seen in my eight years here in San Francisco. It's also the season of adopting kittens and puppies from the Macy's Christmas window. Um, it's the season for drinking our favorite Christmas drink, watching our favorite Christmas movies, and maybe even reading some of our, Christmas, uh, our favorite Christmas novels. One of these novels is a classic in the English-speaking world. It's a Charles Dickens novel, A Christmas Carol, which I think actually describes the Christmas spirit super well. You see, it, it starts out with an introduction of good old grumpy Ebenezer Scrooge. This is how Dickens describes him. He describes him as a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. He was hard and sharp as flint. The coldness within him froze his bodily features. He always maintained this coldness within him, effectively marking the office he and his co-workers worked in with the coldest of cold environments, which didn't thaw one degree at Christmas. So that's Scrooge, exactly that person you don't want to be around. Specifically, not around Christmas time, right? But one night, Scrooge get, gets a visit by his old uh, business, dead business partner, um, J Jacob Marley, whose punishment was actually to wander the world and change because of his greedy and self-serving life that he lived. There was no rest and peace for, for Jacob Marley. Marley hopes through this visit to actually save Ebenezer from the same fate that he is in. So Scrooge has to face some drastic experiences of his own life and of others in his life in which we as the audience or the reader slowly watch him grow in compassion and in empathy. But it's not till he faces the ghost of Christmas future and his, his own potential death. Because there he's full of fear as he's about to fall into his own grave and he screams this, I will honor Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all the year. I will live in the past, the present, and the future. The spirits of all three shall strive within me. I will not shout out the lessons that they, I will, I will not shout out the lessons that they teach. It seems like he's saved here, right? But it's ultimately the fear of death that drives him to this point and realizing his own fate that, that makes him say these words, that bring him, brings him to this like saving knowledge of something's wrong with me and something needs to change. And it brings him into this behavior of, I'm going to change myself. Now, if we take this experience of Ebenezer Scrooge and contrast it with what we just read in 1 John 4, let's read the, 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 the seventh, the seventh verse again. So 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, some of your translation might see a dear friends. Beloved is, I think, a better translation. So beloved, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. It's just a completely different language. Love, not fear. The sentence here starts with the word beloved. You see, Christianity is not fear, but it's love-driven. And John really gets that. Because if you're familiar with any of John's writings, the language of love is kind of like almost hitting in your face. Because one of the things that, that John does is he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Kind of a lofty view of himself, right? Who's just like, I'm the disciple who is loved by Jesus. But he says that because it's at the core of his identity. 
And because of that reality of it being at the core of his identity, it's everywhere in his writings. The most famous one is probably being John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. My buddy Dietrich Bonhoeffer comments on this passage this way. He says, <laughs> he says, God liebt den Menschen, Gott liebt die Welt. Nicht einen idealen Menschen, <laughs> sondern den Menschen, wie er ist, und nicht eine Idealwelt, sondern die wirkliche Welt. I, I, you know, whenever people quote German theologians, I always turn to my wife and say, that's not how he said it, because he didn't speak English. <laughs> Maybe he spoke a little bit, but... But here's my translation. I love translating it for myself because sometimes I feel like the translations that I see out there are not the best translations. So here's what he says, in my words. God loves men and women. God loves the world. Not the ideal human, but men and women as they are. Not an ideal world, but the real world. Bonhoeffer clears up our perception of which person and which world God actually loves. The word beloved that John used here, in Greek, is, in Greek is written agapetos and is pronounced agapetos, which means, <laughs> there's just another H in there because it's like a pertos, so agapetos. Um, and that means the recipients of God's love. Or it, it actually means like you are the carrier of God's agape love. It's not just love, it's a, God's special agape love. What we need to understand is that God was not naive about who and what he loved. He knew exactly what and who he loved. But his love is not that kind of the romantic love where you just look at your partner and you just love them, like even though you see all the flaws, you just still love them. He sees all of our brokenness. He sees all our flaws. He sees all of my flaws and all of my brokenness and failures. He sees all the way I disappoint my spouse, the way we disappoint our partners, our kids, our community, friends, and ourselves. And you know, you know yourself so well that you know that you see all the flaws within, you, within yourself. And then you start thinking, man, I'm not even good enough to actually be loved by this God. A pastor and author writes this, these things can be true but we need to discover, discover that they are not and never will be the truest thing. <laughs> Do you guys figure out who, who I'm quoting? Yeah. Hi, Dave. So just like John, being loved and knowing that you're loved must be at the core of our identities. Because this is and always be the truest thing about us. You are loved by God. Now for me, this makes a lot of sense saying out loud and studying it and in words, it's so good. But it's always kind of harder for me to seep into my actions and catching up with me. Or like as we, as we Christians, we say it, it hasn't really sunk it in my heart yet, right? I'm, I'm gonna say one thing here first. The first reality that always hits me is that I'm not even good enough for this right here. And I can give you all the reasons why I'm not good enough for this. English is my second language. I have a degree from an unaccredited Bible college, and my wife always tells me, don't tell them it's not unaccredited. It is kind of unaccredited. <laughs> but I have a degree from an unaccredited Bible college. I am not, I am not worthy. I'm not like 
prepared enough by worldly standards to stand up here and preach to a, to a group of super well-educated, established, good people in the city. I, that's, it's not, I shouldn't be up here. But it's not me who does this. It's God who appoints his people at, this, at, this, at the perfect time to be up here. And it's not about our brokenness. It's about who he appoints and who he loves because it's totally up to him how he distributes that love. Now, there's one other, other thing that, that this loving part is kind of like still so weird to me. This is how it usually goes between my wife, Chris, and I. Sorry, I'm quoting you a lot, but you're good with it. <laughs> um, sometimes I just kind of catch her out of the corner of my eye. And she's just looking at me. And she has this like super lovey eyes. And then after a couple seconds of me just sitting there comfortably, it's like, oh, what's going on? She just looks over me. It's like, I love you so much. What do I say? Why? <laughs> well, what, what have I done to deserve this love? And so I started thinking, it's like, oh, maybe she just remembered that I like did the dishes or took out the trash. Or maybe she remembered something because you know, it's just suspicious when somebody just says, I love you, without kind of any basic of why you love me. And so we find ourselves in this tension today in Advent, that God is love, that he has loved, that he has loved this world and, this people, and these people in it. But then the tension is, is this really, is this world really lovable? Look at everything that's going on in it. And then the people, there are definitely people that I know that I think God, he, he doesn't, he can't love, he can't, he can't or shouldn't love these people. But then it always sips down to our own identities. So ask yourself the question, why is it so hard for us to understand and live in the truth that God loves us? That was kind of a lofty question for me to answer. And so I asked a couple of coaches if, I could, if they can help me out. Um, there's coaches who I get to do ministry along here at, the, at uh, Reality, who help me out in the CG ministry. So I posted them the question of like, why is it so hard for us to understand to, and live in the truth that God loves us? And so just want to say thank you real quick to, to Josh, Eli, Tina, Sarah, Suzanne, Naomi, Jennifer, Nancy, and Jen. You guys were amazing. And here's what we discovered, okay? Why is it so hard for us to understand and live in the truth that God loves us. Well, it already started in our childhood. Some of us come from homes where we felt really loved, yet still had to make sure that we stayed in that love, that we stayed in the boundaries of love, because we might lose the belovedness of our parents if we just slightly act up or screw up in something. Some of us had to work hard to earn the respect and love from our parents. And some even worked really, really hard to earn the love, but still didn't receive it. And there's still some, too, who actually never had a chance to be loved by their parents. And that's only the beginning of everything. Some of us had bad church experiences where we were taught we had to earn God's love. And then we have culture pushing against it. We are in a utilitarian society. I had to look up that. Utilitarian society, that's what it is. And this is, where we, this is where we learn to find our identity. We, we find our identity in what we do, in how useful we are, and how we present ourselves. And then we run against our own sinful natures, especially pride, that makes us think we have to earn God's love. You couple that sinful nature with shame and the feeling that we don't deserve 
God's love because of the lives that we live. And then we just fall into this trap of thinking that we need to live a life that warrants this belovedness. And then we also have the existence of reality, the existence and reality of death, of difficulties in life, fallen angels, evil principalities and powers, harsh present circumstances, future threats and vulnerabilities, mountainous obstacles, or deep darkness, dangerous creatures that seem to prove God has chosen to distance himself and his love from us. But if God loves us, and if we are worthy of his love, why, would we, why do we have to face all these things? We don't get the tensions that we can be saints and sinners at the same time. Because here it is, we believe the lies of the enemy, and his lies are actually very compelling. Look how I hurt that person's feelings last week or made the same mistake I always do. And man, I'm just not good enough to spend time in my spiritual disciplines. And I don't even, I rarely serve the poor or be like Jesus in any way. So here we are finding all the reasons why God wouldn't love us. And those things might be true about us. But don't you think that God knows all of this about, about us already? Here's how one of my coaches put it. Even if I literally do nothing, still I'm loved. I spend an awful lot of time watching TV, enough to turn into a blob on my couch. So I was depressed, sleep deprived, disconnected from God. Then grace came into the picture. It propels you forward to good works. After feeling like I wasted days at a time, God reminded me, you can do nothing and still you are loved. Immersed in grace, I could accept that really I am God's beloved because of his goodness, his generosity, and his patience towards me. And then I kind of snapped out of it and felt my spirit say, you weren't set free for this. You were set free for freedom, for yourself to enjoy and to bring hope for freedom to others. So with grace and fully receiving my identity as God's beloved, I can leave that load behind for good and take up Jesus' light and easy yoke, which does not condemn. And he's literally powerful enough to change my desires. At the moment when I repented and received grace again, I was in the middle of a pretty good TV series. <laughs> the next day, I was about to hit play on the next episode, and I just felt meh. Overnight, I had completely lost interest in finding out what happens next, because I had finally been immersed in something so much better. Grace and our belovedness is a gift from God, an ongoing present that we have received in Christmas and are also still waiting for us to be completed. And this is exactly what John tells, tell, um, calls upon us next when you look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, this, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Grace. He compensated for all the flaws we see in ourselves with himself. This baby, Jesus, who was born to bring light, to bring God's kingdom, to show and make known to us the works and wonders of God. He does it by living a life as an example for us and for dying for our sins. You see, accepting 
our sinful nature within ourselves and our need for a savior is actually the beginning of living in the love that God gave. The sacrifice of his son declares us righteous. It declares us righteous to be in a relationship with him. And the sending of his son, of Jesus, reminds us of our need for a savior and the love that he has displayed for us. So once we accept that we get life, so once we accept that, we get life, uh, we get life through him, as 1 John 4, 9 says. And the life that we now have doesn't mean you can't screw up, but it also doesn't mean that you have a free pass to do everything you want to do now. But it helps us to create healthy rhythms that allow us to be our true self with God. Because you see, all of a sudden now, you can come with all sorts of your emotion and all sorts of your things that you're carrying around with you every day, your disappointments, your loneliness, your excitement, your joy, your anger. You can bring that all to God because he wants the, truth, the true self of you. My good friend Josh described it at CG the other day like this. I used to see all these commands as such a burden. But once I started to live my life with Jesus, they became a gift to me. It's freedom. God expressed his love for us by sending his son. No strings attached. No way to earn that love. Because in a way, that act already happened of him coming and dying for our sins. And in Advent, the waiting for his arrival, as Rashad taught us last, last week, which is an amazing sermon. If you haven't listened to that, you've got to come back to that. The waiting of his arrival, we find ourselves longing for this love and for this love to be totally fulfilled in our lives and in this world. Because we're longing for him to come back and make all things right. His love is available to you. And, it's, and all you need to do is to receive it. He already loved the world. He already loved you as an image bearer of God. So we are loved by God, by a God who is love, And God not only loves us, but he actually expresses his love because he can't just love us with his warm love and never expresses it. He expresses his, it by sending his love in Jesus to us. And then next, John goes on with sharing with us what we're actually to do with all this love. Now that we have all this love, what are we going to do with that? Verses 11 and 12. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. You have received this love freely. You are loved. So now give that love, share that love. In his gospel, John quotes Jesus saying to his disciples this, he says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So this love that we have received at Christmas that we're reminding of, this love that God has put on display in his son by sending him to us, and making a relationship possible, making him accessible to us, it's, it's to be a tool used in the Christian community. Here's what a really smart man named N.T. Wright says. Love incarnate must be the badge that the Christian community wears, the sign not only of who they are, 
but who their God is. As a German, I typically wear, to most of you Americans, a few badges. First one is usually, oh, you're German. I know this other German. Maybe you know him too. <laughs> or the badge is like, oh, you're from Germany. I've been there. This is where I've been, the airport in Frankfurt. Very cool. <laughs> the other badges I typically wear is soccer, beer, cars, and our history. And we kind of have a bad history with badges. We bore badges in forms of flags and uniforms that represented something really, really terrible. We marked others to be singled out, abused, oppressed, and killed in, in terrible and horrible ways. And some of it was even done in the name of Christianity or with Christianity not doing anything about it. That's just so wrong. Because as Christians, we wear the badge of, oh yeah, this is that guy or that girl who is so loved by God and who loves others so well. Because you see, we are the badges of God's love. This love that God has displayed by sending his son to find true and meaningful life. Love is to be a badge worn by and marking the Christian community. And this is where loving others gets tricky. Because you see, it's one thing to love those that are just like us, that have the same thought, the same ideas about things, that love Jesus. It's easy to love these people. It's another thing to realize that the love that God has for me is the exact same love that he has for others that are not like me. Or maybe they're even the complete opposite of who I am. You see, cultural norms, ethics, morals, and politics, they always get in the way of loving others. Loving those that are not like us then becomes a stretch in our love. And by that, we might actually see an invitation by God to, to grow in our capacity of love. And what happens then is that we are actually practicing the way of Jesus who tells us to even love our enemies. In our previous sermon series on the Holy Spirit, which is amazing, if you haven't listened to it, haven't been here, you gotta check it out. Um, we were given some actually very specific examples and I'm realizing these are just exa some examples. There are so many more examples of how we love each other. But we've given some examples on how to love each other in very practical, practical and tangible ways. So for example, in one session that Darren uh, Roundson, uh, uh, he introduced us to these guiding principles of when we pray with people, what happens. And, and this is actually gonna happen in a couple minutes here at the second set of worship in our ministry time. But here's what he says. The goal for anyone that receives prayer is to feel loved. The environment is loving. The goal is always love. This is about God wanting to love his people. And that's what people need to experience. So I want to share a quick experience of this love on display in a beautiful way happened a couple Sundays ago. On that Sunday, Darren um, was still here and he called out some specific people to stand up to receive prayer. And he, he kind of called out a, a, a tougher one in the room. 
He, he asked people to send up their dealing with depression and, and with suicidal thoughts. And here's what my friend Jess observed that Sunday. Last night at evening service, I had an incredible encounter of witnessing two people who had stood up for depression and suicidal thoughts. They didn't know each other. And during the second set, I watched them find each other from across the room, and they started praying for one another. Others joined in, we asked them how they were feeling, and one just said, really loved and seen, and the other one was crying too hard to talk, but it was, no, there was originally emojis in here that just didn't translate, but it was lit, right? <laughs> But guys, isn't this crazy? That there's people who stand up very vulnerable because they're dealing with suicidal thoughts and with depression. This is not something you typically express in front of 600 other people at a church service, despite anywhere in San Francisco. They, they stand up, they find each other, they pray for each other, and they, the, the only words that come out of their mouth is that they, see, that they feel loved and seen. This is God's love on display in our midst. Paul, in one of his letters, actually says, and I'm going to paraphrase him here, he says, all the stuff of the Spirit is nothing, and they means nothing, without love. Love is vital. It is a fruit of the Spirit, and we are to be bearers of that fruit. We bear that fruit when we remain in Him. You see, a friend, a fruit is actually meant to be shared. I don't know if you guys ever just go by fruit trees and be like, oh, that's a nice fruit. Or you just go by a fruit stand and be like, those, those look really good. Because these fruits are there to be eaten, to be shared, to be had. It doesn't do any good if it just hangs on the tree. It's there to be consumed by the community. So the love that is in you, that God has brought through Jesus Christ, that we are reminded again of in this Advent season is to be first received and then shared with others. At the end of A Christmas Carol, Ebenezer Scrooge realizes that the figure of death that was uh, about to shove him in his grave, um, he was facing it, it shrunk, it collapsed, and dwindled down into a bedpost. And it was actually his, his own bedpost that he now finds himself hanging on. He awakes to a second chance. And he was proclaiming that he will always stay true to the experience that he, that he just had and the commitments he made. But he's still under this weight of if I don't do this, something will happen to me. We as Christians or as non-Christians, we get second, third, fourth, 50th, 100th chances with God. We receive again the chance to receive his love and walk in his love. And we can and should be praising God for sending us Jesus and to receive the love that he has sent through him. 